0: Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello. Today's guest is CNBC's senior analyst and commentator, Ron Insana, here to answer all our questions about the economy, and finance. If you're like me, you have a lot of questions about it. So thank you all very much for joining us today. Please grab a pencil, a paper, and take some notes.
1: All right, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. I have as my very special guest today, um, finance reporter uh, and uh, senior analyst and commentator from CNBC, I, I loved reading that you were named one of the 100 top finance experts, uh, finance reporters in the United States, which is a bonus to have you. Yeah, here. It so
2: cost me $4,000 to get on that list. So, you know, it was- <laughs> that,
1: it's like the top docs and top dentists articles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, New Jersey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, hey, whatever keeps New Jersey Monthly afloat since I used to write reviews for them. But yeah, <laughs> I always find those a little dodgy, but you're the real deal. And I'm glad to have you here today. Uh, You have a a great deal of experience, which is great because we're going to be talking today about the economy, which has left me feeling a little bit, I mean, I think we all feel a little flustered by what's going on right now. Um, I'm going to self-soothe by, um, (laughs) because because that's what I did. This whole podcast. Can I put my (laughs)
2: therapist on the line then while I'm talking to you?
1: Yeah, exactly. But I'm not paying for it. Um, no, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I, get it. Uh, I. We tend to self-soothe on this program by me baking or cooking, and um, I think today you will not be baking, but you may. I think we should talk about food a little bit as a way of sort of grounding our us. Um, I'm making chocolate chip cookies because. Oh man! In prep, sorry, I, you live is, close. I could. That's my some.
2: heroin. <laughs> oatmeal chocolate chip is it. So
1: that's and all oatmeal cookies should have chocolate chips in them. No doubt. Uh, That's, there are people who think there should only be raisins and.
2: I mean, I like them, but the oatmeal chocolate chip is, that's, that's the deal.
1: It's the deal. Um, in fact, mine is actually made with oat flour. So you don't get the chunkiness of the oats. You get just the taste of oats. So I've had those too. I like,
2: (laughs) I like the chunkiness. So.
1: Okay. Nick, when I bring them up to you. when we
2: get to the economy, we're probably going (laughs) to talk about it in those terms, actually.
1: Chunky, textured. It's very. It seems a very textured economy right now because it leaves my hair curly. Um, anybody not watching, my hair's um, mine used to be. <laughs> oh, so I'm preparing chocolate chip cookies in preparation for my daughter coming home from college on spring break. That's her favorite food and clean sheets. Those are the things she's getting for me. But. um you grew up in a very like um, Sicilian Italian family. So there, I have some suspicion that food meant something to your family. Is this true? Yeah, pretty much <laughs> everything.
2: Um, you know, it was, and I, obviously it's true of all cultures that people gather around tables and, and, and eat and socialize and all that. I, I found that in addition to that, I think, and, and I don't know if it's peculiarly Italian, um, but, but food is everything. It's, 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 it substitutes for every single emotion you could possibly imagine, whether it's, you know, happiness, depression, uh, anxiety, boredom, anger, it doesn't really matter what, what, whatever mood happens to strike you is justification for eating. And so that's kind of the environment I grew up in and, and, um, and then it was, you know, wildly celebratory as well, as is the case in a lot of cultures, but, you know, around Roman Catholic holidays even american holidays for that matter like thanksgiving you know purely american it still involved italian food you know but it just came before the turkey it wasn't like we we didn't bypass the turkey at all it was the turkey was the you know it was still the main course but all the italian stuff led up to it and followed it which was you know a bit gluttonous i would imagine and 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 probably you know i mean and we're not we're not roman by any stretch of the imagination but there's Certain bacchanal feel to the whole experience at some point.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean the traditional idea of a feast day, you know, a festival, right? That's where you get the word. It's really just that,
2: right? And we did a lot of it. Yeah, it didn't. You you know, I mean, and and I'm old enough that you know there was a time when you couldn't eat meat on any Friday, not just Fridays in Lent. And you know we're saddled with Mrs. Paul's fish sticks and, and and bad tuna sandwiches. But then once Easter hit, there was an all-out assault on every form of food you could possibly imagine. And so, you know, uh, we're, we're settled with that to a certain extent. My kids less so than, than I, and or, or my wife for that matter, who didn't have that same experience.
1: Did, did you raise your kids to um, believe in the Italian traditions of like whatever you did? Did they eat the same foods?
2: No, not really. My, my daughters don't talk about it. My son has been complaining of late that we did not raise him in any ethnic fashion whatsoever. And so he doesn't know what he is. He's three quarters Diane, one quarter English Irish. And he's been complaining to me that like, you know, which I did to my mom because she named me Ronald, which is when she was pregnant with me, she was watching a movie and there was a Sir Reginald and Ronald was the derivative, the American derivative. And she was an Anglophile. So somehow I got stuck with Ron. And I was like, what's the matter with Dominic or Tony, or, you know, what, what, what the hell happened here that, you know, you give me an English name and I'm an Italian kid. And now my son, who's, you know, kind of relatively light haired and, and, and fair skinned is like, what am I? I'm like, well, you're mostly Italian. I said, we didn't, I said, no, we didn't. I said, because there are a lot of reasons why we didn't, you know, first of all, it wasn't the emotional baggage that went along with eating like that or acting like that. And, and, and two, my family and my wife's family fully assimilated. So it just. It is what it is. I mean, it's you know, you can only carry it for so many generations in this country before you just basically become American,
1: right? I you know, I find my I grew up eating very sort of traditional American food. My mother was a housewife of the '50s and '60s and '70s, right? So she wanted to do everything from I'm pointing at the freezer, um, everything from the freezer, uh, those sorts of things, and we eat like such a different such different tastes in my family we eat a lot of mexican food we eat a lot of um, korean food and and i i I can't imagine like you know my grandmother didn't know what garlic was she learned
2: (laughs) well we we, you know it's like we didn't know what sushi was when i was growing up so it was you know that was a late ad um and we didn't get a shot at indian cuisine and part of my early part of my life was in buffalo new york and i remember we got a mexican restaurant uh called pepe Tacos, which. Did not resemble Mexican food in in the classic sense, but it was all we had, and so. But you know, we didn't order in. There was no DoorDash. You know, the only places that delivered were pizza joints, which is technically kind of Italian, even though it's not. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the the in my early years, the food experience was extremely Italian, and if and on top of that, you're Roman Catholic. You know, it was it was all kind of mixed together. And then if it's dysfunctional, Roman, Catholic, Italian, there's even more food involved, just to make up for some of the other things going on <laughs> at the time. I, <laughs> I,
1: I, I understand that. Um, uh, the food is emotional, but happy and sad, and all of them in between. And to other people, it's like, you shouldn't eat your feelings. I'm like, I really, I just, I don't get that. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> well,
2: Italians and Jews share that particular aspect of it. That yeah, yeah that's that. Yeah, the, the Brits don't do it, and for good reason because their their food's horrible. But I mean, <laughs> um, that's
1: I'm not gonna let my husband hear that and he's British. But oh, it's, gotten be- it's gotten better. It's gotten better. It's gotten better. It's got a lot better than when, my
2: first trip there. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, a lot. The, the sandwiches a lot better. and butter with uh, unidentifiable meat were were a little strange in the oh. early '90s, but it's it's gotten a lot better.
1: Yeah, and hot dogs from a jar. And, and canned hamburgers. I don't even want... I, I have to stop. I said, don't, sorry, I'm sorry. It's a happy food show, not a bad one. Um, <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I like the bad food idea. That's actually probably a decent series. We, I totally could do bad food because I grew up with... Um, I didn't have real mashed potatoes until I got to college. It was Hungry Jack or nothing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We, we had real ones, but then I, I think when my mom went back to college and then started also working there was the occasional box stuff that got mixed with whatever it was milk or water and yeah not the same
1: not Not the the same but is there a dish that you miss a dish that you want to make is there something that you you wake up at the middle of the night and you're like if only i had is there something like that
2: no my, my wife actually makes everything that my mother made only better so i don't have um that gap She can make, and and I'll say it the way we said it growing up as an Italian instead of as an American, monocote, which everybody else refers to as manicotti. She makes that as well as my mom or better. She sauce better, meatballs better. Everything is pretty much, you know, so there's nothing I really miss. There's stuff that we don't do anymore. Like we don't have a, you know, Italian cold cut day where we make, you know, our homemade garlic bread and then throw everything on it and then just go nuts, you know, for lunch. That's something that doesn't really happen that often. So yeah, that might be one thing that I miss. uh, and then you know, having a great Italian bakery anywhere, th- and there is one in New Jersey, but there's only one, shockingly, that would be on par on par- on par with what I experienced in Buffalo. And yeah, I mean, do you want to name it desserts. for me?
1: Because I have a, um, I have one I have
2: one for you. <laughs> I've got my wife off camera. What's the name of the place? The Italian bakery that we go to. That you like? That I picked up all that stuff? Rispoli, in Ridgefield Park. Okay. Okay. That's a good Co- joint.
1: Good joint, and closer to me uh, is a place called Manarello's Bakery, and then they have one on Route 46 that has a different name that's more Italian, and these are the real deal from Italy, and their stuff is really, really good.
2: Yeah, the only other place is Ferreras on in Little Little, just off Mulberry Street. That's you know, but and I, look,
1: I mean, for a lot of reasons, I don't eat a lot of cannoli anymore. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it, but it's it's. it's but in the middle of the night, you want to know if there's a decent cannoli somewhere. That's somewhere, my fear. Anywhere,
2: anywhere somewhere. within you know driving distance, absolutely. Although, as you know, as as part of our conversation, I, I imagine the notion of food being more expensive right now is going to come up um, because everybody's dealing with inflation of some sort. So,
1: like, exactly. Um, the price of eggs. I, I which reminds me, Rough. actually, I need yeah, to put absolutely two, two. crumbled.
2: <laughs> We've had a hum- dumpy, We had a Humpty Dumpty moment in eggs. They're less than half where they were. Uh, At the peak, and part of that was avian flu, which forced U.S. you know chicken producers to call the herds pretty dramatically. And part of it was transportation and energy costs. But from what I've just seen recently, egg prices are crashing, cracking, whatever you want to say, and um,
1: (laughs) they're breaking uh, down. Yeah, they're breaking
2: (laughs) down. Yeah, and um, that part of the, the supply chain is getting normalized again. So that you know that that kind of inflation is disappearing pretty quickly. There are other kinds that are very sticky on travel and hotels and restaurants, but. But grocery items are probably going to start coming down pretty noticeably in the next couple months.
1: I think a lot of people would find that um, a good thing. Um, It's it's a a regressive
2: tax on middle and lower income folks. So it's making that much harder, you know.
1: Um, And I think our our President Biden just came out with his budget today. Yes, he did. Um, It's been a a very good week for you to be on. We've got Mr. Powell and we've got Mr. Biden telling everybody that the uh, richest Americans are now going to get, he wants them to be taxed. I'll say wants them to be taxed 25%. Well,
2: never going to happen because the Republicans are in con- control of the house for the next two years. So it's, it is what we used to describe as a debt on arrival budget. And there, it, it is ladled with, just to continue with the food metaphors, <laughs> nothing or it. salted with <laughs> uh, nothing but tax increases. And so, and the one thing we don't get any relief on is the, the salt uh, deduction cap, which is still stuck at $10,000. That's gonna, I think revert in 2025 where we can then write off state and local property taxes and things like that. Um, at full value right now, that's capped at $10,000, but his budget has, yeah, as you say, a, a minimum 25% tax on, on billionaires. There's a, a rollback, increase in capital gains taxes for people who make a million dollars or more, um, that they're rolling back. They want to roll back, uh, the, there's a loophole for hedge funds and private equity, um, investment firms, uh, that's known as the carried interest loophole. They get taxed at a different rate. And I think they're trying to roll back 1031 exchanges, which would affect real estate pretty dramatically. Again, none of this will happen in the next two years. And unless there's a fully democratic Congress, that's got, you know, enough of a majority and a democratic president to push stuff like this through, just not on the table till 2025.
1: I mean, to me, it's much more of a sort of like political gambit on his part anyway. Like, look, sort of positive, like uh, what I would do for you if I became president again. Again. Yeah, look, I, and I don't, I don't disagree with some of it. I, uh, taxing
2: long-term capital gains at ordinary income rates discourages investment. And I would be disinclined even for people making over a million uh, to face that tax. I don't care how they tax billionaires. I mean, if Jeff Bezos can spend $500 million on a yacht, and that just be one of his four or five yachts. I don't care if he coughs up twenty five percent. I do worry about tax on unrealized gains because very difficult to administer. If you're holding stock, and then you have to pay stock on pay taxes on stocks you haven't sold, that becomes really messy. And then the question is, do you also then are you allowed to write off unrealized losses? So it it has always been a two way street. And so I, not to get way too far in the weeds here, but it's, it's, it's a really problematic set of tax policies. I'd raising the corporate tax rate. Fine. You know, the, the corporations are flush. They can do what they want with, with, the uh, you know, with their cash right now, which is buy back stock and raise dividends. So they could afford to pay a slightly higher tax rate. He's pushing it back to 28. I think 25 is probably the right number from the current 21. Uh, that on average, I think they pay 11 or 12% uh, in, in the aggregate. So I don't care about that stuff. I, it, Discouraging investment in a time when we're attempting to onshore uh a lot of, you know, advanced manufacturing and things like that. That that just puts a chill on all of that stuff because it means people won't put money to work in the areas that we want to build out. And so I don't think that's I don't think they've fully thought that through.
1: Yeah, I sort of wondered about that possibility, like how do you bring things in and encourage it, uh, the way things are going. And do um, it at
2: the same time that the Fed's still raising rates. I don't think you want to have a really restrictive FED fiscal policy. While the Fed's tightening, what we like to call monetary policy, or just raising interest rates, to put it more simply, that's that could be a double. That would be a double whammy for the economy, and, and it, you have to time that better than than just saying, yeah, we're going to do this over the next ten years while the Fed's still tight for the next one or two.
1: Yeah, um, I I um, come to you as someone who's uh, never taken economics. I studied well, lots of other things. You both, actually. But, well, I actually would like to know, how did you get into this? What brought you in? And then we'll start talking about what's really what's going on topically. But I want to have a sense of what brought you here.
2: Yes, it was entirely unintentional. So um, it's been a 39 year detour um, and I'm I'm working to fix that right now. But uh, when I graduated college (laughs) with a degree in film production, I could find not a single job (laughs) in Los Angeles. My family was not connected. I did have a friend from high school, very close friend who was working at the Financial News Network, which was the forerunner of CNBC. It was the first business I remember, news channel, yeah. uh-huh. which launched in 81. I graduated in 84. He got me a job as a production assistant there. Um, so I was there for four months and I was making $50 a day, no benefits, ripping wires back when the wires were paper and you know, handing out scripts when we did that. And about four months into the job, my executive producer came up to me and said, Remember when I told you I needed you next week? I don't need you next week. So that Friday was my last day. I went back to the vitamin store where I worked in college. Um, a week later, they fired 95% of the editorial staff to go to break even overnight. And early days of cable, everybody was losing money. Everybody was fully staffed, but couldn't support it. We were in 12 million homes, I believe in the United States at the time. And my friend Casey stayed on as a producer of Bill Griffiths and Super Hero, with whom I worked for 35 years stayed on as the sole anchors. And we had a couple contributors who were specialists and they really went down to a complete skeleton staff. So I spent four months back in the vitamin store. I was looking for entertainment work, still couldn't find any. My friend Casey called me up after being, uh, one of two producers for eight hours of television a day. And after that, and he said, I'm leaving to go to Investors Daily. You want my job. And it was $22,500 a year with benefits. I'm like, absolutely. I want your job. Boom. I was in. Bill and Sue had been on the air eight hours a day for six straight months, sharing that ad lib experience with very little support. And in May of 85, they called in sick on the same day, and I was a producer in charge. So I put myself on the air for two updates. And three months later, I was a full time anchor with no prior economic background and no prior anchoring experience. And so I didn't know what I was doing, I didn't know what I was saying. And for people who watch cable television today, nothing has changed in the ensuing 38 years. So, oh. uh, but that was just it was just the way it went, and you know, your jobs were there for the taking to a certain extent back in in the early days of cable. And I did go and take an economics class after I got on the air because I had never studied econ in an academic setting. But I, I was around some really really interesting and intelligent people. Um, John Bollinger, who's a famous market technician, he created something called Bollinger Bands, which is a way to measure movements in the stock market. Um, Michael Crichton's younger brother, Doug my late best friend was maybe the single most brilliant person i've ever met and he helped me learn an unbelievable amount about what we were doing and then you know as part of the function of being on air and literally ad living this stuff every day we just we all threw ourselves at it and so we were doing interviews and at the time you know <laughs> as young as i was i was 24 when i got on the air and um literally knew nothing about markets or economics we could call anybody on Wall Street and they would talk to us and they were very generous with their time. It could even be guys like Henry Kaufman, famous economist at the time, who would pick up the phone and walk you through it and analysts on the street would explain concepts to you and it was, a, it was just an all-in learning experience. And then, you know, I just spent a ton of time reading as, and talking, reading as much as I could on weekends and, and It's
1: better out. than any graduate school.
2: Well, uh, I mean, I got paid to get what, what ultimately could probably come close to being a PhD in economics, but um, someone said that to me once when we were in the middle of the speaking event, he goes, I don't know what I wasted my money on a PhD (laughs) for. (laughs) He was a film major. Um, (laughs) But no, I also just found it fascinating. I mean, it was the one thing that was three-dimensional chess every single day, right? You had to figure out, put the pieces of the puzzle together, whatever metaphor you want to use. Every day was different. Every day had a different input, different outcome. And you were calling the game as it was happening too, which was something that was really never done before, and and so it was the macro, it was the micro, and it was everything in between, um, and politics affected it, and geopolitics affected it, and you know whatever. You, my first live reporting event, which again was accidental but quite fortuitous, I was visiting visiting a buddy of mine in Chicago who was in med school at Northwestern, a guy I'd known, excuse me, since I was in the seventh grade, and. So I went out and I hadn't really been to Chicago much. I liked the town. I wanted to get a flavor for it. And we did a show at the time with the Chicago Board Options Exchange, very creatively entitled the Options Report. Um, and I asked Bill Griffith, who was my boss at the time, if I could do a live report the Monday morning that I was there, the first weekday that I was there. Um, and then take this options trading class in the morning so I could understand that in 86, and 87, there was a lot going on with options and futures and things like that, that were becoming more integral to the market. And so Bill said, sure. So my, I'm doing a live shot, um, this Monday morning, October 19th, 1987, the day of the biggest stock market crash still in percentage terms in the history of the stock market. And that was my first live reporting experience, which then covered all five days that I was in Chicago, 12 hours a day, all three exchanges, the options exchange, the board of trade and the mercantile exchange. And it was just, again, another trial by fire experience that was you know, a massive explosive, you know, kind of learning event for me. And so it's all been very fortuitous. And, um, I ended up learning things I never thought I'd learn, meeting people I'd ever thought I'd meet, doing things I never thought I'd do. So, you know, a roundabout way of saying, you know, with respect to the 39 year detour, I am finally making a movie at this stage of my life. And it's about a wall street scandal in 1963. So kind of full circle in, in every conceivable way.
1: It's all come together. Can you tell us about the film?
2: Yeah, it's based on a book called The Great Salad Oil Swindle, which actually, you know, will play into the food bit a little bit here. So there was a New Jersey gentleman by the name of Tino DeAngelis um, who decided after having spent a lifetime in the commodity business um, and doing a lot of shady stuff, not necessarily connected, but some people thought that he was, given that he was an Italian in New Jersey. Um, five foot five inch, 250 pound guy. Decides in 1963, he's going to corner the world market in soy oil futures. And so he leases out empty petroleum tanks in Bayonne, New Jersey, fills them with salt water and floats oil on the top.
1: Wait, wait, wait. Pause a moment because I have been making a joke for, I don't I mean joke. I've been saying for the past 10 years that those petroleum tanks in Elizabeth are actually filled with red sauce. That's New Jersey.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Tino Tino didn't take it quite in that direction. Wow. Um, And were it only true, were yours only true, um, we'd all be down there every weekend. Uh, He filled it up with salt water and floated oil on the top. So, And then was believed to be in control of about 1.9 billion pounds of soil oil, which didn't exist, but he used that as collateral to borrow hundreds of millions of dollars from 51 different lending institutions, including two big broke rich houses on wall street american express had a field warehouse receipt company that really at the end of the day didn't do adequate due diligence they kind of semi took his word for it that he had the oil so they wrote these field receipts uh, warehouse receipts for him that he used as collateral cash really bought up soy oil futures and the whole thing crashed third week of november 1963 the week in which on that friday jfk is shot so Markets crashing the whole week before JFK gets shot. Very early morning, everybody thinks there's another shoe falling in the DeAngelis case, and it was actually the market's very early reaction to the news that that JFK had been shot in Dallas. And so um, the book is great. It was written by a gentleman who's still alive, the Wall Street Journal reporter, won a Pulitzer for it, uh, for his reporting, uh, Norman Miller. And so I optioned the book from him four years ago, and we're just now in the process, finally, I believe. Uh, moving forward on, on making the film up in Toronto and, and, uh, hopefully we'll be done and be ready for the fall, which will be the 60th anniversary of, of both those events, the salad oil swindle and and JFK at the same time.
1: Oh, this sounds fantastic. It's a great story. I mean, and, and, again,
2: it, it speaks to the repetitive nature of scandals on wall street. And this was the biggest since 19, the 1920s, um, but was obviously overshadowed for, for good reason. But then you get, you know, you get all the scandals in the 80s, the 90s. You get then the Sam Bateman frieds the Elizabeth Holmes, the Bernie Madoffs, all of that stuff. It's all the same story with different faces and all varying levels of complexity. This being in my mind, the single most deceptively simple scandal I've ever seen in my life. And if the flip side is that Warren Buffett, um, looked at American Express and their liabilities in this crisis and decided that unlike what other people felt was not enough to of the company and so he bought the stock it was his first big big investment and it turned buffett partners into berkshire hathaway so the uh, the flip side of that story is out of chaos comes opportunity and so while tino goes off to jail warren becomes warren you know
1: man so somebody won off of yeah and
2: you and you usually do if you're smart right if you're smart enough to figure it out and and honestly there was the 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 tip for Warren, and this is a little bit in the weeds as far as the stock market is concerned, the stock certificates for companies like American Express and Wells Fargo had one word on them that Warren had explored, and it was assignable, which meant if the company ran into any trouble, shareholders would have to cough up capital to make up for any shortfalls. And so all the trust companies that owned American Express at the time were forced to sell the stock at a discount. He swooped in and bought it up and made an absolute killing on it. And so. That's just that kind of smarts that, you know, you find that little nugget that says, oh, yeah, they have to pay $90 million. Who cares? Their revenues are strong. Everybody's going to be selling the stock in a panic. I'm going to step in and buy it.
1: Wow. That is, a, there are a lot of lessons there. Yeah, a lot. Uh, <laughs> a lot, a lot. <laughs> um, but the word chaos sort of brings me back to today. Yeah, which, chaotic. Yeah, it's chaotic. And so we have, um, you know, for those of us as ignorant and as I am, and I suspect there aren't that many as ignorant as I am, but we have, and I was reading um, I, I, I'll, I'll beg the differ, but go on. Thank you. <laughs> I promise not to be self-deprecating. I promise not. Anyway, um, the New York Times article that I was looking at, one of them, showed that inflation is more stubborn and that economic momentum is stronger than expected. And the quote that follows that is says unsettled and confused policymakers. Me too. Yeah. So, well, all <laughs> of us. Is there, why is this situation so unusual? Well, it,
2: unusual is a better word than unprecedented because we, we've we gone through massive shocks before that were, you know, either war related, health related, economic related. This isn't the great financial crisis where you had the financial system collapse. Um, this isn't, uh, you know, a simple stock market crash that can be really quickly fixed with, you know, an adjustment in interest rates, reliquifying the banking system and so on. This is a dual set of shocks. It's the pandemic and the war. So we re- have not seen that combination in our lifetime. So you have to go back to 1914, not 1918, for both those things to have happened at the same time. The inaptly named Spanish flu had actually started here and, and World War One. And when you came out of those disruptions, if you will, and, and, you know, like all the attendant, um, loss of life, economic disruption, supply to the extent that supply chain disruptions mattered then, and they did, um, you saw in both the periods after World War I and World War II, you saw a rapid increase in inflation as the economy came out of periods of depredation or disruption, demand snaps back, the government steps in, inflation in 1947 was 20% in 1918, 1919. It was double digits and then settled back in after a period of time. Now, there were demographic differences and there were a lot of differences between all of these periods. The, the analog that all the economists are using right now is the 70s. I prefer the post war analog. Everybody's worried about a wage price spiral and the, and the Fed making the same mistakes they made in the mid 70s when the economy rolled over. They were fighting inflation. Then they cut rates again and inflation picked back up. That's the current worry. And the economy is so fractured in a certain sense, where you have a recession real estate, you have a manufacturing real estate, but post pandemic, you've got travel, leisure, and hospitality booming. right? Get on an airplane, they're all full, go to an airport, just absolutely packed. Go to a restaurant, can't get a table, you know, blah, blah, blah. And part of that is behavioral finance. People are working three days a week in the office and effectively now have four-day weekends so they can work from anywhere. So they're going anywhere when they can. And. It's got nothing to do with anything other than this kind of profound and structural change that we're seeing in the economy. And we're short people, which is driving up wages, because the pandemic took a million one individuals, 500,000 of whom were working age. Three million people retired, two million women left the workforce for a period of time. And so there are all these different distortions, which is why it feels chaotic. It's why we have goods inflation falling, services inflation going up, the Fed's raising rates, the real policy tools that we would use to correct. A shortage of of workers, because we also have a bit of a baby bust, would be comprehensive immigration reform. That ain't happening. Um, So there are all these different things. And the only policy tool we have at our disposal at the moment is the Fed slowing the economy with higher interest rates, because we're not getting comprehensive immigration reform. Millennials are not going to have 22-year-old babies that just jump into the workforce. And you know (laughs) we do have some technology that's replacing labor, but that's not happening at a pace that is bringing wages back down or bringing wage inflation back down so the fed can stop raising rates so yeah it is chaotic it's crazy and in my mind there's no single descriptor of the economy that works right now it's not a uniform uh a series of events that you can kind of describe the overall economy with you know one word
0: at this point in the podcast we must bid farewell to our non-subscribers thank you all for listening If you'd like to become a subscriber to The Deep State, you'll enjoy perks that unlock special conversations only available to members, and not just for The Secret Life of Cookies, but for all the Deep State Radio podcasts. Thank you all for joining us. I hope you have a great week. Ron and Senna can be found on CNBC and Twitter at Ron and Senna. You can find me on Substack at marissarothkopf.substack.com and on Twitter And if you can, please, please leave a review in the Apple Store. The more reviews, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. Wouldn't that be nice? I think so. So I thank you very much. Have a great week from me, Bosco, Calvin, and the very fluffy Clyde.